you know, once I read that it isn't how many times you get knocked down that matters, it's how many times you get back up. Hello, I am J. David Weeder, but as always, you could call me Dave. And this is a Two True Freaks production that, you know, for being completely honest, none of us thought would ever happen. I know what you're thinking. Didn't Dave quit this show? And then do something else and then promise to bring the show back only to quit again before it even came out? What's happening here? Is Dave flip-flopping again? In short, yeah, kind of. A little flip-flop here. See, I wasn't thrilled with the way this show ended. Or the fact that my feed for the show was just this kind of mixed bag of non-Daredevil episodes. So when fate intervened and my Batman and Wonder Woman site went belly up, killing those shows, I was, of course, discouraged. But I suddenly found my dance card empty for the foreseeable future. So the conclusion, or the the nugget of the idea I came to was, why not have a Dave's Daredevil podcast farewell tour? You know, some episodes get the feed in the right place and secure the show's legacy properly. After all, we're so close to episode 100 and never even got to do Born Again or Guardian Devil, Fall from Grace, or any of the Charles Soule Daredevil stuff. There's so many things that needed to be covered before you retire a show to make it a well-rounded Daredevil show. How many episodes will the farewell tour be? I honestly have no idea. This started as a pretty simple idea and then spread out. I'll tell you, we will pass episode 100. I can guarantee that. I mean, to end 10 episodes shy and then storm off like a petulant child? That can't be how the show ends. I cannot live with that. I owe it to you. I owe it to me. And I owe it to the character of Daredevil to round out the show. So I don't know how many episodes it'll be. You will know when the show is reaching its end and the farewell tour is coming to its final stop. But I still, along the way, kind of want to cover some random Daredevil stuff for old time's sake. I mean, it's kind of a combination reunion farewell tour thing. So I I made this spreadsheet and I randomized it. And I used a random number generator to pick what I'm covering, a.k.a. the Scott Gardner Maneuver. It's not stealing if you give proper credit. And I made some random picks for us along the way. Even better, though, I found the original recording that I did and apparently completely forgot about for this episode, episode 91, covering issue number 304. So I threw that right on the editing bay, and that is what you're going to listen to. Now, I will admit my voice is very, very choppy. I was coming off a really bad cold. And I was able to mine more synopses and write-ups for episodes that were in the works, so I found myself actually suddenly ahead of the game. And why would I not want to be ahead of the game? And so the Dave's Daredevil Podcast Farewell Tour is kicking off, and I really am excited about this. So without fanfare, the show continues, beginning the epic Farewell Tour with this very episode, episode 91. And this may end up going the way of the Kiss Farewell Tours, where it never really ends. I have no idea. But for now, I'm going to leave you with episode 91 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a Two True Freaks presentation. This is the podcast all about Daredevil, his allies and enemies, the man without fear himself, and I am your host, J. David Weeder, but as always, and as always will be, you can call me Dave, and as you can probably tell, my voice is not at 100%, but it's functional, so we're going to make do with this first episode back. I tried something, it didn't work. It's that simple. I'm glad I did it. 
but the show as you've known it all this time is back. And I kind of feel like we should be catching up, but there's not much to really tell. I've been going to work, I've been trying out the Dave Does podcasts, I've been here and there, but there's nothing all that exciting to tell you. It'd be especially awkward to try to do some sort of current event thing since I'm really recording this about three months ahead of time to give you a peek behind the curtain. I will say, as soon as I sat down to do notes, it finally felt right again. And, you know, maybe I just needed to get that out of my system. But it is out of the system, so I'm ready to move forward. So I guess probably the best thing to do with this preamble is to just jump right into an email. And this is the last email in the email bag. To give you some perspective, since it's an older email, it comes from May of 2016, before the hiatus and before Dave does podcasts. The email itself comes from Isaac Miner, and I do apologize for the tardiness of this email, Isaac. And it comes with a subject line, Now I am a Daredevil fan. Isaac writes, Dear Dave, I'm a longtime listener, first-time emailer. I found your show because I knew the Netflix show was coming out a year ago now. Anyway, I wanted to increase my knowledge of Daredevil before I dived into the show and I started listening and I am currently a few episodes away from being totally caught up. I especially enjoy you not shying away from Daredevil spirituality as I am a ministerial student myself. Enough about me. Thank you for a great content and for the introduction to Daredevil, a loyal listener, Isaac. I'm extremely gratified to hear you're becoming a Daredevil fan and my show has anything to do with that. As I said in the first episode, it's not what I'm setting out to do. I'm not out to recruit. I'm out to just show how great these comics are, and then they can do the work for them, and you're proof that that approach does have some legs, so I'm glad to hear that. And as far as shying away from Daredevil spirituality, I can't. It's something that's really too tied into who Matt is and what makes him Daredevil. In fact, his whole visage is kind of an answer to that spirituality. He dresses as the stereotypical devil. And it's funny that that's brought up because this week I had a run-in with somebody who asked me, who gave me, basically gave my Daredevil shirt I was wearing a weird look and asked me how can I wear something with the devil on it, and I kind of explained, well, the devil doesn't look like that in the Bible. The Christian Bible and the Torah don't mention the devil having anything to do with red skin or horns, anything like that. They mention that Lucifer is the light bearer, so to me, you know, somebody who is telling you what you want from a high castle wearing something white that looks like something too good to be true that to me smacks more of the devil of Satan than somebody who's out trying to serve the greater good. And to me, Daredevil is is basically playing the role of a servant, trying to protect people, trying to help people, both as his profession in law and as Daredevil. While somebody like the Kingpin, who is publicly you know looked at as a, a leader in the community, as somebody who is charitable, who lives in this high tower and dresses in white, that's what I'm afraid of when you speak of the devil, is somebody like that. But basically the argument didn't go far because nobody was really there to receive it, if you know what I mean. Like the lights were on, nobody was home, smile and nod, but it did give me a neat perspective on Matt and Daredevil. So I appreciate your email, Isaac. This email and that experience is going to tie into this week's issue. When setting up the issues for the return of the show, I decided to just pick up where I left off. So this week, we're going to be looking at a day in the life, or a little bit more than a day, with Daredevil number 304. And we're going to be looking at that right after this podcast promo break. 50 years ago, Southeast Asia became a home away from home for 2 million Americans as they fought on the biggest, the longest, and most controversial conflict their nation had known since the war between the states. Old enough to kill, but too young to vote. This is their story. Stan Lee presents The Nom. Join me, Tom Panneries, as I bring you an issue-by-issue look at The Nom, the Marvel Comics series that documented the lives of troops in the Vietnam War. Each episode covers one issue of the comic, as well as the history of the war, and I also take the occasional look at movies, music, television, novels, and other culture of the Vietnam War. 
New episodes drop every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. And we have returned. And this issue, luckily, doesn't need a lot of setup. It's standalone. It's simply a day-in-the-life tale like I did around episode 9. And I like these. I like these slice-of-life types of stories. I mean, you have things like the X-Men playing basketball, Spider-Man stuck in suburbia with nothing to web-shoot off of. These are fantastic little bits. Now, this is a story that's going to be written by D.G. Chichester. I've, misspe- I've mispronounced that for a long time. I thought For a long time, I thought it was Chinchester. It's actually Chichester. And he came on around 292 as the main writer, kind of following up Ann Nacinti's run. And with a few here and there exceptions, he remained the writer through issue 342 and then came back to write the finale of this volume in 380. And he's actually joined by Ron Garney, who is the current artist, at least of this recording, for the Daredevil Realm of Charles Soule. He's probably best known for teaming up with Mark Waid on a really good Captain America run in Captain America Sentinel of Liberty. And Garney's kind of doing a, a fill-in job here, a one-off. As mentioned, our issue is Daredevil number 304 from May 1992. Holy cow, that's the end of my freshman year. The cover's by the artist Ron Garney. Uh, We have Daredevil standing on the ledge of a clock tower, alert, scanning the city as the cover copy reads, Time Marks a Cry for Help. And it's, it's a poster cover, and there's not a thing wrong with it. The clock ties into the theme of the story and acts as a fairly good first panel. It actually continues into the story itself, unintentionally. It's a bit generic. But it's also really just darn gorgeous and intimate. You have a quiet moment with Daredevil. He's preparing for his night, for his his crime fighting. The calm before the storm, if you will. We don't have a big cityscape or aerial feats of, uh, you know, acrobatic prowess. It's just him standing there as a solitary sentinel. And inside this cover is a story entitled 34 Hours, written by Dan G. Chichester, or D.G. Chichester, penciled by Ron Garney, inked by Bud LaRosa, lettered by Bill Oakley, and colored by Christy Scheel. And sadly, this is not reprinted and not on Marvel Unlimited. So the only place you can get it is in the physical copy itself, which, of course, you can find relatively cheaply. I would recommend mycomicshop.com. And to break down this issue, the synopsis goes as follows. Daredevil's day begins at 10.07 a.m. as he overlooks New York City from a clock tower. By 12.34 p.m., things get hopping. As a couple rolls their infant child off of an elevated train, the wheel of the stroller gets caught as the train moves into motion. Even as the father desperately bangs on the conductor's window, the train continues and the child falls from the platform. But Daredevil rescues the child and places it back into the arms of her parents and then delivers a warning to the conductor. Clean out your ears. By 4.56 p.m., Daredevil comes upon a ponytailed yuppie trying to swipe a cab from a woman who is weighed down by shopping bags. Daredevil throws the guy out of the cab into a puddle and allows the woman into the cab that she hailed. A bit later at 12.01 a.m., Daredevil stops a baseball bat-wielding mugger and delivers him to the police station where the sergeant asks, It's that time, isn't it? At 2.39 a.m., Daredevil stops a drunk from using a chainsaw on the bar that kicked him out. And at 7.28 a.m., Daredevil helps a homeless man keep hands on his shopping cart. At 11.22 a.m., Daredevil keeps a game of squash from going literal when one of the players ends up in front of a car. But the real deal starts at 3.51 p.m. at Washington Square Park as a series of separate events coalesce into one dangerous environment. A film crew proceeds with making a movie complete with an Eastwood-style protagonist as a juggler entertains a gathered crowd with blades and flaming batons. Meanwhile, a young man catches the attention of a creepy old predator as an undercover cop makes his way through the crowd. The juggler gets distracted by a baton as a knife flies in the air and the movie cop runs into his scene as the young tourist is being led away. Daredevil springs into action, catching the juggler's flying sword as the juggler falls, throwing the sword at the predator, stopping an undercover cop from killing the actor. It all happens in seconds, and when it's over, the juggler and the actor keep their lives, and the undercover cop gets a predator, and the young tourist is saved. 
Later at 8.07 p.m., Daredevil mulls the statistics that every three hours and 55 minutes a murder occurs in New York, and then he hears a familiar sound of a struggle. The issue ends with Daredevil leaping back into action to do his part in changing those numbers, since time is wasting. Okay, to begin discussing the issue, I'm going to jump back to the beginning, naturally. And kind of segueing from the cover, we actually do go from Daredevil standing on a clock tower to Daredevil crouching on a clock tower in the first page, so it's actually an organic transition. It feels like the story starts as soon as you pick up the book, which is actually very interesting, and not a trick I'd see used often enough. Used to see things like the Flash telling you not to open the book, you're gonna see, you're gonna, you know, cause my life to end, and now you have no interaction there. In an age of iPads and tablets where interaction is key. I'm not saying that should be, well, no, I am saying that, I am exactly saying that, that should be part of the gimmick at this stage or part of the experience to have some sort of interaction. But as we go into the story itself, we see that it is 10.07 a.m., which means Matt should probably be at work, right? Now, one thing that the story does not clarify is, is is Daredevil in costume for 34 hours straight? Does he forego sleep? Does he go straight through? Or is there a catnap in there, maybe checking in at work? That I'm not sure. Upon my original reading, I kind of surmised that Matt was on some sort of vacation, a vacation day or day off or sick day or something like that. In my head, this is a marathon straight through that Daredevil has decided I'm going to be Daredevil from point A to point B for this amount of time. Because in my logic, that's how Matt would spend his vacations. If he's sitting on a beach somewhere in Long Island, that's going to make him really restless and very uncomfortable with the things that are happening in his absence. Why Matt decided to take a vacation day and do this, why the specificity, I'm not sure. I racked my brain, I did some research in trying to find some kind of phenomenon that says for 34 hours there's no murder, or for 34 hours there's an intensity. The closest thing I found is that occasionally New York City does uh, go 24 hours without a murder. I think that's a bit of a cheat because it goes 24 hours without murders being reported. So there may well be murders or what have you, but it's not being reported. It's not getting into the hands of the people who need it. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Now, I should note that the clock that Daredevil is standing in front of, the edifice here has a knight battling a dragon, which of course is a pretty straightforward, unsubtle bit of symbolism, made even less subtle by the fact that Chichester has to point out that Daredevil is a knight battling the evils. I get it. We get it. The reader is able to discern this stuff for themselves. That's one of my complaints about Chichester's run, which was actually pretty extensive, which means there's a chunk of Daredevil stuff where the subtlety just goes straight out the window. Now, sometimes subtlety is overrated because other writers, other artists have used some over-the-top means to make their point, Mark Wade being one of them. And the credits actually depict this as a story about New York, which I like. New York is definitely the epicenter of the Marvel Universe and the epicenter of Daredevil's world. Daredevil is a part of New York. New York is a piece of Daredevil. Matt is synchronized with this city. Yes, he's traveled outside New York. He's had adventures outside of it. He's lived in San Francisco. It was never quite the same. It's not a love story. It's just a job outside of New York. Either way, it's a good setup. This is all about the first page so far, people. But the story then jumps two hours, 27 minutes into the future, and we have this young couple with baby Manny, Hector and Jess, this young Latino couple, and you know what, I just imagine them having moved to New York after having some problems in Melrose Place. They got sick of Andrew's shoes, is what they did. They moved to New York to be closer to family and away of all of that. And I say that because they look so very 90s. You have this amazing ponytail and goatee on him and leggings and pastels on her, which was contemporary at the time, but very dated now. And the baby buggy getting caught in the door is frighteningly real. I know these things do happen, and, and I actually had an absolute and total panic attack at this. This isn't some villain coming along attacking. This is something that really happens and can happen. 
And Ron Garney just sticks the landing on this. I mean, you see Hector's panic. He is full of tears. He is banging desperately on the door of the train. Please stop. Please stop. You're taking my baby. And then you have this moment that kind of freezes because you see the buggy toppling over and the baby's actually flying out. It's in shadow and it just feels like you don't want to turn this page. So it feels like it freezes in time. And Hector falls to his knees. It is emotionally hard to read, but it was exactly what was needed to sell this scene. And then we have this sequence of Daredevil saving baby Manny, and it is heart-stopping. I mean, if this were a, a film, you would drop the sound. You'd have complete silence as Daredevil swinging in. And Daredevil's line isn't quite reaching, so he has to let go. In the decision-making process, Daredevil realizes, I can let go, I can get hurt, but I can shelter this baby, and that baby is what is important. And Daredevil makes the catch, he rolls on the ground, and the day is saved for this baby. It's such a small thing in the terms of how big New York is, how this small event is happening. It's not going to be in the newspaper. It's not Galactus showing up in the sky. But it makes a world of difference to this family. And that is where Daredevil exists, people. I'll be speaking a little bit more on that in just a moment. And Daredevil follows the train back to find the conductor and tells him to clean your ears. And the guy is, you know, I want to defend him to some extent. He's doing his job. It's unclear how much he could actually hear what, what, you know, if somebody's banging on the door over this train, but at the same time, this guy's burned out. He probably wasn't really as vigilant as he could have been. He wasn't really thinking about the safety of the passengers that are under his care. Now, I mentioned that not just to make the note about the conductor, but the elevated train track was, as stated here, on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. And I was able to fire up Google Maps here and find that place, which is Atlantic and East New York Avenue. And it actually shows the track curving perfectly as depicted here by Garney. Almost perfectly, you see this area that looks like an auto salvage yard. So what that would mean is this is Daredevil following the engineer by train or what have you all the way to Penn Station beneath the river. Penn Station is below Madison Square Garden. So Daredevil took all the time, which is a good, I mean, having been on that train, 20, 30 minutes, just to tell the guy to clean out his ears, which I guess lesson learned and all, but what happened in that 30 minutes from point A to point B? What did Daredevil miss? The better question is, is what Daredevil missed really Daredevil's response? Because we see here, he's taking care of these smaller jobs, the things that fall through the cracks. Because from here, what we see is Daredevil yanks Mr. Ponytail Cab Thief out of the car. We're dealing with things that we might think are small and trivial, day-to-day, boring. And that's one of the best aspects, are these small moments that you wouldn't see in, in general stories. They might be the opening act, but most of the time they're leading up to Daredevil fighting Mr. Fear or Deathstalker or something like that. Here, they are the focus. And you know, not every night is wall-to-wall excitement in Fun City. Some nights, Daredevil may just be chasing down traffic offenders. Jaywalkers, I guess, would probably be below him, but dangerous drivers? Daredevil would have no problem taking them out of the road. And you know, the scene with Ponytail Guy, I want to bring that up, and the scene with Baby Manny. It's these things that slip through the cracks. That's where Daredevil lives. He sometimes comes out to fight the real villain, to fight the hand or something like that. But this is more today. This is Tuesday. And I'd like to think that Daredevil helping Miss Shopping here might have something to do with the greater good. But at the same time, knowing Matt, it might just have to do with dat ass. Now to bring it back here, as mentioned with uh, the scene with Ponytail Boy, Baby Manny, these things slipping through the cracks, it shows this other side of Daredevil that Daredevil isn't a character that's going to be lifting the Master Planner's machinery off of him. He's not going to be crossing the Rainbow Bridge to Asgard. He's human. He's real. He's part of New York. We make another time jump here to 12.01 a.m. Assuming some trivial things happen, maybe a meal here or there, we run into a mugging. The mugger has fingerless gloves and looks like it has about, he looks like he has a two-life crew shirt on. So I feel like I'm watching watching the first act of a Law & Order episode. And 
in terms of travel, this again kind of has me puzzled because Daredevil drops the mugger off at the 33rd precinct, which is way north in upper Manhattan. So I guess Daredevil's making his way from Brooklyn to midtown Manhattan to upper Manhattan, maybe heading towards Harlem. I don't know. The key to this is the reason I bring this up is the whole exchange with the police captain that the clock's ticking. And for some reason, this keyed into me. This stood out and I kept going over it. Like, what is this doing to my brain? What are these thoughts that are ethereal that I can't quite grasp? And it took me a while before I finally settled in. That's a piece of the Matt Murdock puzzle. The clock is always ticking for him. You have court, you have tight crime on the streets. You has to be somewhere at all times. He's obligated. He's either defending somebody in court, prosecuting somebody in court, fighting them on the streets or getting them into the police. And, you know, those moments where he has a still moment, there has to be a mild panic there. And what it finally came down to, to me, is not only is that a component, Matt's main mindset is, by default, is it enough? Am I making enough of a difference? For all the people that Daredevil saves, you know, Baby Manning, the mugging victim, the cab girl, there are many more instances where Matt failed. He wasn't there. To take you back here, he took a trip from Brooklyn to Penn Station to tell the conductor to clean his ears out. What happened in that half hour there? Does Matt wonder about that? What have I missed while doing this? He can't be in more than one place. I had a bit of an epiphany, a bit of a change of viewpoint. See, Matt isn't atoning for Jack's death. That's always been the assumption. And certainly Jack's death got the ball rolling in a big way, but it's sometimes it's these people that he knows, sometimes the faceless, nameless people that he doesn't know that he's failed. It's failure that's driving him from the people he failed in his work life, his personal life, his romantic life, and as a superhero. Hear me out on this, because I have proof here in this very issue. If we were to take this as a marathon 34-hour superhero streak, we have 34 hours to being in the costume, dealing with drunks, cabbies, and more. Do you understand how much stamina that takes? Because Matt's not sleeping. He might get a catnap at most. But the moment he sleeps, something slips past his watch. More so than stamina, you have determination because when your body starts failing, when your mind tells you it's time to sleep, you have to push through mentally. And what is the core of that determination that has him pushing through? The question, am I doing enough? Have I sacrificed enough? And that's a really sad aspect of Matt because a better question would be, when will it be enough? When have I hit my goal? The problem is he won't because he will continuously fail because he cannot be everywhere at once and do everything. And for him, it all rests on his shoulders. Matt may never actually have true peace. He may have moments. He may have breathing room from time to time, but that will always be taken from him. And to take you back to why, I take you back to Daredevil issue one. He put himself on the hook for this because we begin Daredevil issue one with Daredevil showing up at Fogwell's gym to atone. He's there to catch the fixer and Slade and bring them to justice. Let me underline that. Bring them to justice. The problem is the fixer died. The fixer never faced justice. He didn't get what he deserved. And the reason for that is that Daredevil feels that he was being a sloppy rookie. He showed up not knowing what he was doing. He was making it up as he went along. And because of that, he chased the fixer. The fixer died and the fixer never faced real justice. Despite the fact that he brought in Slade and that fixer is no longer a threat, Matt feels that that night at Fogwell's was a failure. And Matt himself is somebody who is defined and driven by failure. His blindness drove him. He fails to see, so he aspires to build up his other senses. He fails to play sports, but he atones for it by exercising. Now, some of these are not his failures, but they are failure. He's somebody who is driven and defined by failure. Look at Maggie, his mother. Well, if you want to call her that, she failed to be a mother. She left him. He felt she was dead, but it turns out, no, she left him. She left him and Jack. She failed at being a mother. 
Jack failed at being a boxer for the most part. Maggie ended up being driven towards the nunnery. Jack went a different direction, and of course that led to Jack's ultimate downfall. These are Matt's first role models, people. Matt's circumstances also dictated what happened. Jack put on him that you cannot play sports, so he aspired to other things, and he found success in academia. An accident took his sight, yet Matt decided to push through, continue his studies, and overachieve. These are the things that drive Matt, subconsciously, but they drive him, don't they? Daredevil is not a man without fear. He's a man who is seeking constant atonement. He'll keep doing this again and again and again until he gets it right. And it's a sad, tragic, cosmic note that Matt will never technically get it right because there's a part of him that will never see 100%. It's something that's impossible. The irony, and I kind of tied this into the preamble, is that Matt dresses as the devil. Not as he would be in the Bible, but bear with me. Matt dresses as the devil and goes out to serve. He goes out to be a servant and to protect. While in the Bible, Lucifer, the devil, found his downfall in pride. And that's when we see Matt really stumble is when his pride takes hold. But Matt, dressed as the devil, finds his real redemption, his real purpose, and his real place in this world in humility. In sacrificing his well-being, his sanity in some cases, and his safety to serve others. The truth is, Matt's not a man without fear. He fears failing. He fears failing and somebody losing their life. He carries that on his shoulders each and every day. The beauty is when Matt puts his pride away and Matt puts on his humility, every time he puts on this costume, he's facing that fear. He's fighting back and he's kicking his fear in the face. He simply cannot quit because of this. This is at his core level. He may take time off, but he'll never be able to fully quit. He'll never be able to stop, which is tragic. But maybe it's Matt's calling. I don't know. He's just driven and wired differently than a lot of people. And maybe that's because somewhere in his subconscious, Matt feels this is his soul that's on the line here. This isn't just his soul. It's the soul of a city, the soul of the people in the city. And this story made that concept clear to me. And it made it really poetic that this city of New York City and the people within her are Matt's purpose. They're his destiny. They're his burden and responsibility, yes, but they're also his redemption and his method of atonement. They're probably the only thing that keeps Matt from really collapsing in on himself. But it's also something, it's a game that Matt will never, ever be able to quit playing at the same time. And there's some tragedy in that, that really Matt will never be completely happy. He'll have moments in the sun, but he'll never be complete. Now, when you turn this around at the same time, you see that's why these things, these trivial things matter for him. He stops some drunk from carving up a bar with a, with a chainsaw, by the way. He helps this homeless man keep his cart from tipping over and spilling his cans. I mean, his only real method of income. And he keeps a woman from getting hit by a car while playing squash. And he returns the ball. Half of this issue is vignettes. With Garney delivering this lean, bounding daredevil. They're sharp-looking vignettes. But it's only halfway through this issue when the real story kicks in. And this, in itself, could have been its own Marvel Comics present short. But I'm glad it's here. I'm glad we get this slice of life and expanded version. And that's when we get to Washington Square Park. Because here is another revelation about Daredevil. Because he, air quotes, sees all of the moving parts in the scenario that's about to play out here at Washington Square Park. From the juggler to the movie makers to the predator. And it's not enough that he's just aware of this. That's pretty astounding in itself. Because, uh, you know, his own version of perception and his own unique viewpoint But it's not just that he's aware, it's that he does the math. He knows how to topple the dominoes in such a way to make this successful. What happens here is the ongoing ballet that Daredevil does with the city. The city and Daredevil are fluid, they're codependent on each other, they dance. 
It's synchronous movement for the betterment of both. You have Electra, Karen Page, Heather, Echo. These are all great girls. There's real emotion involved in this relationships with them. But the greatest love story in the history of Daredevil is Matt and New York City. And when they dance, it is beautiful. So here we have these pieces in motion. We have the film crew, the knife juggler, a wired cop, a little, little too tightly wound, and the young man and the pedophile. Now, just to mention, Washington Square Park, I just want to clarify this, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. We have four big components happening here. Washington Square Park is right by Empire State University, for one thing, which is New York College in the real world, but it's 9.75 acres. It is crowded. There's concrete, so there's things echoing. There are sculptures to echo off of as well. Half of the issue takes place over 24 hours. To come to this point, which is a challenge in and of itself to pick any one thing out, but the second half of this issue takes place in seconds. Mere seconds. I mean, take this to the next level. Daredevil is basically somebody who's able to interpret this ant farm that is New York City. He can see the moving parts all at once. And he can act on them. This is beyond the senses. He has this ability to anticipate outcomes and interpret the data. Some of this is Stick's training, sure. Some of this is intuition. Some of this is his senses. Some of this is beyond that, though. I have this theory, and I'm going to be playing this out. It's only a theory, but I have a theory that Matt has this enhanced ability to gain knowledge. I don't necessarily put all my money behind that, but there's a little bit of evidence here, isn't there? After Matt is blinded, he has to learn how to read again in Braille, which he does very, very quickly. He has to learn to live again, which he does really, really quickly. He has to learn to train his senses, which he does relatively quickly. Now, the training with Stick is how to weaponize those senses, but the basic function comes from Matt, who went on to be valedictorian at Columbia Law School. Maybe Matt has uh, some sort of residual effect from the radiation, and he's able to learn and adapt in a different way from you or I. Maybe he views it backwards. I'm not sure. That's something I want to explore as we go forward, along with the idea of Matt asking, is this enough? And the idea of him atoning for his failure. Definitely things I want to put on the board and discuss as we go forward. I love that this scene isn't just Matt stopping the bad things, because the juggler's blade is used to stop the pedophile. And in one sense of motion, Matt reaches the cop and his hand jams the hammer from the cop's gun. So this is all one boom, boom, boom. Faster than you or I could down a soda, this guy has saved the day of a handful of people. And it's because he was able to anticipate, he was able to move in between the anticipated moves and actually succeed. Something that would be nearly impossible statistically. But again, these are subjects I'm going to be expanding upon. I just want them on the table now. And the issue wraps with Daredevil on a ledge, hanging out, reflecting, before leaping off again. And I like that. I like that we have this cyclical nature, kind of like the killing joke, where this is a battle that's never going to end, as mentioned by myself. In one form or another, this is going to keep going in perpetuity. It may not be Matt standing on the ledge. It could be Moon Knight or the Punisher, but it's going to keep going. This is New York. It's a living, breathing thing made up of smaller living, breathing things. And this is going to go on forever and ever and ever. But let me bring this in for a final verdict because I want to put this all in a nutshell. Because for the most part, my notes have been specifically about Matt and kind of his relationship with the city. Another thing I'm going to be exploring. This issue is no big event. There's no kingpin, no hand ninjas. But he did give me a strong, strong insight into Daredevil. He's not just a hero in New York City, but a hero of New York and because of New York City. And this is why I really love this issue. It's straightforward. It's clear. 
I open it, I enjoy it, and I smile when it was done. It was well-rounded and a fine, fine issue. Doesn't break the bank. It's not a game changer. It's just a good comic book. As mentioned, Chichester's not known for his subtlety, but Garney is an awesome artist. And knowing his style develops well beyond this made this sweeter. Looking at his current work, you see the seeds of that but you see where he's going to expand and use some of the more modern techniques. In this case, it's lucky that Chichester isn't subtle. He doesn't need to be here. The issue itself is as simple as can be, and it needs to be. The book is currently cooling off after the fall of the Kingpin storyline, by the way, and you're going to see Scott McDaniel come aboard in issue 305. So it's about to take a very definitive 90s direction. Whether that's good or bad, you decide. I have an issue with the period of Daredevil here. There's some good bits, but overall a little frustrating and a slog. But this is a rare gem and a bit of a shaky period. This is a very pure story. There are some good stories in this era. I don't want it to sound terrible. But this was certainly one of the better stories that you'll read. I mean, certainly trying to get through some of the storytelling aspects of... For example, Fall from Grace versus the very straightforward storytelling example here, you can see the big difference from the time frame and why I think this is such a rare gem. And it also gives me three jumping off points that we're going to be discussing going forward. Daredevil's relationship with New York, Daredevil atoning for a constant failure, and Daredevil's ability to learn and anticipate things differently than others and possible mutation from his accident. And with that last one, I definitely want to clarify once again, that's only a working theory. We're going to be tearing that, uh, either building that up or tearing it apart as we go forward. So, so slow down on the email. But that wraps up Daredevil number 304 and this episode. However, I will be back next time jumping back to the 1980s in an Innocenti John Romita Jr. issue in which we introduce Typhoid Mary. That is in one week. Of course, between now and then, feel free to visit the page at twotruefreaks.com or daredevilpodcast.com, both the same. Please feel free to rate, review, and share. Visit me on iTunes or use the RSS link for the podcatcher of your choice, all at twotruefreaks.com. You can also email the show. That is mail at daredevilpodcast or leave feedback at the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daredevil Podcast. And until next time, I'm J. David Weeder saying, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Two True Freaks production and is made for entertainment purposes only. It does not draw profit for the material discussed, nor does it generate any general revenue. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright, Marvel Entertainment, all rights reserved. All opinions are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views of any other individual, entity, or organization. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only and the copyrights lie with the copyright holders. No infringement is intended. This show and the host Soul are both registered trademarks Marks of Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Count evil father, he lost his key. Dream of Ghost Rider when you hear his name. Hell, devil, fight for what is right.